Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. I'm feeling like a bit of a dummy. Ah, because of the dishwasher in the background. Yes. Folks, I am a vampire. I am an immortal being who feeds on the blood of the living. I am not used to this newfangled technology. I'm not used to having a dishwasher. I thought vampires didn't like running water. We don't. <laughs> so I, I, I set the dishwasher and then Sarah looks at me and she's like, we're recording in like 20 minutes. And I'm like, oh, oops. Yeah. Oh, well. So forgive us, folks, for the background noise. How are you doing, Sarah? Uh, I'm doing all right. It's been a very, very busy week and a very, very busy weekend. And I am behind on all the October things we wanted to do on Patreon. And I'm behind on all the things that I need to do for the CJSW funding drive at the end of this month. And I'm very behind on all the work at my paid job. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, just burning out like a bright star. (laughs) October is always a really busy month for us, and um, I I can't remember. Is this the first October we've had where you're doing your bonus content? I'm doing the like bonus episode concept, and we also have the horror adjacent movie. Or did we have horror adjacent last year? We have been doing the horror adjacent for just over a year. This next one will be. Uh, number 15, I oh, think. Okay, so, got yeah. it. Okay, so we've gone through in October with all this extra stuff before, but I don't know, this year it feels like a lot. It's all going to come out though, dear listener. Don't worry about that. We're going to take care of you. Uh, just like Gaiman should take care of his poor wife, Oriwa, uh, and not take care of in like the mob sense. <laughs> uh, what are we watching today, Ben? Sarah, today we are watching... Yet another version of Yatsia Kaiden. However, it's all led up to this. Mm. Uh, because this is Tokaido Yatsia Kaiden from 1959, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. And this is the reason we've been watching all these versions of Yatsia Kaiden. This is the reason we've been watching all those Nobuo Nakagawa movies. Because they come together here with what is generally considered to be like the best movie version of Yatsia Kaiden. Okay. So, dear listeners, if you're listening in and you're going, what's a Yatsia Kaiden? <laughs> it's either It's a Kaiden that's a Yatsia. <laughs> it's a Kaiden that's in Yatsia. Yeah. But um if you're asking that question, you either have not heard our previous episodes on all the previous versions of Yatsia Kaiden or you are in the future and you're sort of skipping around the show just you know, picking out your favorite movie here and there, and you don't have all the background. So in a sort of blitz-like fashion, we are here to deliver you the background information <laughs> about what is Yatsia Kaiden. If you do want to go back and listen to any of those previous episodes, we cover the 1949 Yatsia Kaiden in episode 153. Uh, decided it was not horror, so it's not ranked. 
1956 Yatsuya Kaiden in episode 191. It is currently ranked at number 152. And the 1959 Yatsuya Kaiden that came out the week prior to this movie uh, in episode 265, and it's currently ranked at number 97. So high expectations for uh, this particular version. We'll see if it can beat out uh, the version from Daie released 10 days earlier. I think it will, because that is certainly how history remembers it. (laughs) So all of these films are based off of a kabuki play uh, of the same name. As is common with kabuki plays, uh, that story is very, very melodramatic. It's also very, very long. It would be performed uh, across two days and intercut with the uh, play version of 47 Ronin. So I'm going to give like a brief plot synopsis of what is common across all of these adaptations, and then I can kind of go into more specifics uh, if you would like me to, Ben, uh, about what is specifically different in each one. Yeah, one of the things that we see with all these adaptations is either a picking and choosing of subplots from the play or like a simplifying of subplots from the play or just a straight up getting rid of subplots from the play because the play has, as you might imagine from what I just said, a lot of subplots. Mm-hmm. But the common plot is that Yemen is a poor ronin, and he has a wife named Oriwa. She is sick, typically from a miscarriage, um, but she's beautiful, and she's a very devoted wife. Now, uh, Yemen has a quote-unquote friend, kind <laughs> of like a bad influence friend, named Nausuke, and he sees that there's a uh, woman in the village who is from a rich family. Her name is Ume, and she is in love with Yemen. Uh, of course, Yemen can't get with her because he's already married. So Nausuke conspires with uh, various people, but typically um, a woman named Omaki, uh, who might be a maid, might be Yemen's mom, but, you know, is here in some fashion uh, to get Yemen and Ume together. Particularly, this involves arranging for a way for Yemen to divorce Orwa, uh, typically with, like, well, if someone rapes her, then, you know, you can just divorce her. Who cares? And then also a means of uh, giving Oriwa some face cream that disfigures her. Through that disfigurement uh, and also that assault, uh, Oriwa is killed and her ghost vows revenge. Um, she haunts Yemen and ends up getting Yemen to kill Ume and her family on their wedding night. And this haunting also drives Yemen mad. Um, Nausuke meets his own end in various ways, depending on the adaptation. In the original, um, he commits suicide because uh, he's been going after um, this woman named Asode, who is also Oriwa's sister, uh, and turns out they're related or something. So he's like, fuck, and commits suicide. In other versions, uh, Asode is involved in uh, comeuppances for Nausuke and or Yemen. So that's the basic outline. Yeah. You know, I guess I never thought about, to the, like, until now, that that plot twist in the Kabuki play where Nausuke turns out to be Asode's brother and that's why they can't have sex would mean that Nausuke is Oiwa's brother, too. Like, I just, yeah. for some reason, my brain never put strung those pearls together. Oh, well... Um, you sweet summer child. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild. 
Yeah, so we've seen a lot of variation from the play through the different versions. And typically, you can kind of see with the different movie versions that we've watched, like what I'll call different creative agendas at work. So like the 1949 version was trying to kind of downplay the theatricality of Kabuki and kind of downplay the supernatural elements of the story in favor of like more psychological realism. Yeah, and so in that one, um, Oiwa and Osodai are actually twin sisters played by the same actress, and Osodai impersonates Oiwa to help drive Yemen mad. And then the 1956 version was a pretty, like, standard version, but it had this element of bringing Yemen's mother into the story as someone kind of, like, influencing Yemen to do bad by kind of pushing her son, like, helicopter mom style. Yeah, in all cases of Yatsuwa Kaiden, Yemen is always lacking initiative, um, kind of being a, a bum at home, you could say. Um, and so he's more or less manipulated by others. In the 1949 film, um, it's mainly manipulated by Nausuke, uh, in 1956 by his mother, Omaki, and in uh, 1959's film uh, by Nausuke and, and Ume's family. Mm-hmm. But particularly in the 1959 version, Gaiman is also the most sympathetic we've ever seen him because he becomes vengeful on Oiwa's behalf. Yeah, it's it's less about like the ghost taking revenge on Yemen and more about the ghost like scaring Yemen into taking revenge for her. And yeah, that was like overall the sort of creative thesis for that version was essentially like making Yemen as blameless as they could while keeping the plot intact. He still does die at the end. Yes. Generally speaking, Oiwa is kind of a character who lacks a lot of agency until she's dead. Which makes sense for a ghost story, right? Yeah. So she is sad and has different levels of desperation based on the adaptation's goals, um, but she's always trying to be the best wife possible. She does die in different ways. Uh, in um, the original play, she is given the face cream by Ume's family to kind of be like, yeah, now Ume doesn't have to worry about the competition. And she dies uh, after that uh, because of um, an attempted rape so Yemen can divorce her. Uh, in the 1949 version, she falls face first into hot water, and that's how she becomes disfigured, as well as Nausuke giving her face cream that, like is supposed to help, but it's, like, not. And then she is poisoned by tea by Yemen. In 1956, um, she's just straight up poisoned uh, with tea, and uh, that disfigures her face. And um, she fights off her rapist with a razor and then ends up accidentally, like, cutting herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1959, uh, she is poisoned and face-creamed. <laughs> Um, well, the face cream is the poison. It's yeah. like supposed to be medicine for her face. And then um, she uh, dies by uh, falling on a sword that's been cut into a wall. The um, rapist character in the original play. So his name is Takuetsu. Mm-hmm. In the original play, 
I believe he runs like a brothel, right? But in all the movie versions we've seen, he's turned into a masseuse. Yeah, and it's basically just like, you know, he is either uh, someone who is purposefully going out to assault, uh, someone who has been convinced to go assault, um, and then, uh, you know, in, in some cases, like in 1956, the poison takes effect as he's going to attack, and then he gets scared and runs away and all that, and then he tries to blackmail people, and he gets killed for that, like... In all cases, he's like a villainous character, but not as villainous as, say, Nausicaa. Yeah, and there's often varying degrees of like how much he's been talked into it or influenced. And um, also, there's usually varying degrees of like how much he goes through with it versus not. Like sometimes he sort of gets cold feet, essentially, uh, and, and doesn't do anything. But yeah, so these are the kinds of variations we see through the story. Um, now Skay himself is honestly probably one of the most consistent, consistent elements. Yamin's also fairly consistent, but now he's always the bad influence. He's either a mastermind or just yet another bad actor and probably the worst of, uh, the people doing bad here. Mm. Um, in the original, as I said, he dies by suicide in 1949. Uh, his backstory is that he's an expert thief and is actually the reason why Yemen was fired as like a samurai in waiting in the first place. So Yemen kills Nausicaa. Um In 1956, he is uh, he in all the versions and in, in the original play, Nausicaa is like going after a sode and you know has different. Uh, levels of success in Mm. uh, convincing her to go with him. But in 1956, Asode realizes what Nausicaa has done to her sister, and she and the ghost of Oiwa kill Nausicaa together, uh, which is dope as hell. Mm -hmm. And in 1959, um, Nausicaa is killed by Yemen in revenge for Oiwa. Yeah, and, you know, in contrast to Oiwa's kind of lack of agency, one thing that I've noticed about the film versions that wasn't really as prominent in the play is giving a lot of agency to a Sode to kind mm-hmm. of become the person who's like putting together the pieces in the second half of the plot to figure out, you know, who's behind everything. She's the one who's always asking questions. Yeah. Because otherwise everyone else who we meet is in on, to some level, game and getting with Ume. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Asode's always here uh, as the sister and always the person asking questions. In the original play, Asode dies by suicide because of Nausicaa being an asshole. Um, in the 1949 version, she has a happy ending with her husband, who is also here. Like, I just yeah. haven't mentioned him. He's always around, but he never does anything, like, worth talking about generally. In 1956, as I said, she gets that revenge on Nausicaa. And in 1959, she is involved in asking questions about Oiwa. You know, I I guess you could say she has a happy ending because she doesn't die at the end. So, yeah, structurally, she's here to ask questions. Yeah, so her kind of variations depend on to what degree she's made a co-protagonist or not. Yeah, in the 59 version, um, Asode kind of fades off to the background once Gaiman becomes active as being a a vengeful force, because otherwise, like, there's nothing for her to do. Yeah. Um, One of the things that happens across these adaptations is, as I mentioned, there's, you know, a lot of subplots in the Kabuki play, and perhaps more importantly, there's a lot of, like, iconography. Mm Mm-hmm. 
important moments, symbols uh, that you have to have. For example, uh, the original play kind of came about because it was inspired by um, a true life incident, very minor inspiration, but gets incorporated into the play of people who were murdered and then nailed to doors, which were then like dumped in the river. And so in the Yahtzee Kaiden story, that's usually um, Oiwa and sometimes another character, Kohei. And then usually those doors like kind of... Um, Resurface now and then. Yeah, to like freak people out. Um, but like what's been interesting is the movies to varying degrees, like either include the doors thing or just kind of like hint at it. Like, because it doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. It's just iconography. So the movies have kind of varied in how much they incorporate that. Yeah. Well, we might have someone say like, yeah, I saw a door floating by with Kohei's body on it. Like, and you don't actually see it. So there are certain things you need to hit because of the Yatsuwa Kaiden um, legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, kind of a sense with a lot of these movies that they expect the audience to be familiar with the story already. Um, other iconic things that you know you have to have are like Oiwa's comb and like the hair combing scene, uh, which is like present and I think almost identical in like each movie. It's just the degree to which they want to be gruesome about it. Yeah, because the poison and face cream takes effect as she's brushing her hair and her hair starts falling out. Yeah, which is meant to be like a subversion of a kabuki thing where hair combing scenes were supposed to be like sexy. Yeah, a very sensual, because you're seeing a woman at her most uh, intimate way, I guess. But there's, yeah, all these traditions associated. uh, One of the traditions that you hear about a lot that I I don't know how it's supposed to work in real life is this tradition that the Oiwa actress is supposed to visit Oiwa's grave, but like it's a fictional story. So I don't know if there's just some grave that they've decided is Oiwa's or how that works. Um, But all of which is to say one of the things we talked about in our most recent Yatsia Kaiden episode was kind of this idea of symbols that start to become so important that they lose the connection for what they're supposed to symbolize, right? Yes. So which of the versions so far is your favorite? I would say I would be torn between the 1956 and 1959 versions. I notably liked the 56 version better probably because it's a little shorter. Hmm. But um, one thing that I wanted to make sure to mention is uh, one of my main critiques of the 1959 version is that it takes forever for Oiwa to die and then the haunting to begin. And then after we had finished recording that episode and everything, you did the math and it's actually like percentage-wise the same in every adaptation that it's like the last 25 to 30% is when Oiwa dies and the haunting begins, uh, which I thought is just really good to mention, even as much as it, it does not feel that way when yeah. watching some of them. And, you know, there's a little bit of variation, but generally speaking, the, the sort of proportions are the same. It falls into a thing I was reading about Kabuki earlier today that um, I guess there's like a structure to Kabuki plays where they are supposed to start slow, ramp up, end suddenly. Yeah, that that fits with what we have seen. 
of yeah. this and other kabuki inspired Japanese horror. I think that, you know, whether that build up to Oiwa dying feels like a slog or not. Like to me, it felt like a slog in the 56 version. I remember that. And for you, it was a slog in the 59. And I think it comes down to like, how interesting can the director and the writer and the actors make the scenes leading up to it? My favorite version is honestly the 1949 version, even though it's the very long two-parter. <laughs> yes, it's two hour and a half long parts, which in some ways makes watching it like closer to how the Kabuki play feels, even though it makes a ton of changes to the plot. Um, but I really liked the level of depth you got out of the characters in that version because it was longer. And I liked the sort of psychological emphasis on uh, the characters. So I really liked that version, even though it's so concerned with kind of the like, tragedy element of the story and kind of this idea of just watching how bad people seal up their own ends um, that it doesn't really do much as a horror movie, which is why we didn't rank it. So you ready to talk about this version of Yatsia Kaiden? Yeah, I think from now on, uh, if we are going to refer to the previous 1959 version, uh, we should call it like the Masumi Yatsuwa Kaiden, mm -hmm. um, the director, Misumi, uh, and then this one, the Nakagawa version. Yeah, and I mean, you know, because these two movies came out, like, within 10 days of each other, that is the reason why this movie is called Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden, which really is just sort of more specific. It's like if... Um, but it's actually the original name of the play. Is it? Yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise me. The Japanese go in for long titles. <laughs> But um, it's sort of like if Gangs of New York was called Gangs of New York, New York. But um, yeah, they, they were the ones who had to have the sort of disambiguation title, which reflects the fact that this was a like kind of a B movie. Um, the production with Kazuo Hasegawa, uh, directed by Kenji Masumi, that was like meant to be a prestige A picture from Daie. And we kind of felt that like one of its flaws because of that was that it seemed to be like trying to be so reverent to the source material that it wasn't really willing to have a lot of fun with it. Mm -hmm. um, so this movie had a smaller budget, was less prestigious uh, in terms of its cast than Daie's version. But Shintoho, who made this one, didn't want to be outdone in like presentation. They didn't want it to be like obvious that like this is the cheap one so this version is also in color and in scope okay yeah and you know this is shintoho's second time at bat for yatsia kaiden because they also did the 1956 misaki mori version uh, but for this rendition they handed it over to like their sort of horror master director nobuo nakagawa who we've seen all these previous horror movies from and one of the things that's unique about Nakagawa, I think, is he was doing like contemporary set horror stories, whereas like a lot of the other movies coming out of Japan that were horror or horror adjacent in this time were like these period drama films. Um, but we did see Nakagawa do a sort of practice run at a Yatsuya Kaiden-like story in Kaiden Kasane Gafuchi, mm -hmm. um, which like... I seem to recall liking pretty well. Yeah, it was good. So Nakagawa and his writers crafted a version of the story for this 
rendition that takes basically the opposite approach to Daae's version uh, in that they make Yemen as unsympathetic as possible so that audiences would root for his comeuppance at the hands of the ghost. So whereas in Kenji Masumi's version, uh, Yemen was kind of made blameless because he was being played by a heroic actor, an actor known for playing heroes. Uh, this time we're doing the opposite of that. Another choice that Nakagawa made is, um, so he worked with cinematographer Tadashi Nishimoto, who shot Black Cat Mansion uh, with Nakagawa before, and would go on to shoot Way of the Dragon and Game of Death mm -hmm. under the name uh, Ho Leng Shan. Nishimoto and Nakagawa worked together along with production designer Haruyasu Kurosawa, who had also worked on Black Cat Mansion and Lady Vampire and the 1956 Yatsuya Kaiden. These guys all worked together to create a look for the film that would go back to its roots as a kabuki play and emphasize the theatrical style. Uh, okay, that's going to be amazing. So they I wanted... am so excited for this now. <laughs> so they wanted it to be highly stylized, and what they wanted to do was kind of mix that kabuki stylization with the garish colors and gore of the hammer horror films <laughs> that had been like quite popular in Japan, particularly Horror of Dracula. So that's kind of what we're we're getting here is like lots of color and like lots of style. Sign me up, Ben. <laughs> you know I'm a slut for aesthetic. <laughs> yes, it has been said before. <laughs> um, Shigeru Amachi, who plays Yemen this time, uh, had previously played the vampire in Ana Kyukatsuki. Okay. Um, and he would actually continue to appear in Nakagawa's uh, horror films after this. Uh, but he's mostly known for like Jidaigeki roles. Um, like he plays a couple of minor characters throughout the Zatoichi series, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, a Sode actress, Noriko Kitazawa, had played Ohisa in Kaiden Kasane Gafuchi, as well as Yae in Bore Kaibyo Yashiki and Okiku in Kaiden Kagami Gafuchi. Katsuko Wakasugi, who plays Oiwa this time, had played Orui in Kaiden Kasane Gafuchi, uh, while Junko Ikiuchi, who plays Ume here, had appeared as Itsuko in Lady Vampire. So people who have worked with Nakagawa quite frequently in the past. Yeah, and... Um, in horror. The horror genre in general. Yeah, exactly. So Takedo Yatsuya Kaiden was released in Japan on July 11th, 1959, 10 days after Dai's version, and was a smash hit, both critically and commercially, basically immediately overshadowing Dai's version, uh, pretty completely. Uh, today, it is commonly considered to be the best film version of Yatsuya Kaiden. If you look up Yatsuya Kaiden 1959, this is what's going to come up, not the Kenji Masumi version, and it was released in the U.S. under the title The Ghost of Yatsuya, forcing Kenji Masumi's film to be given the somewhat ridiculous title Thou Shalt Not Be Jealous upon release in the U.S. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, how are we watching this? Well, Sarah, we are going to be watching this on the Criterion channel, uh, which is, yeah, uh, that's the place to find this movie. If you want to watch along, the Criterion channel is where this is does that mean it's in the criterion collection they haven't put out a physical release of this yet okay 
I would be really interested in seeing what they do if they do, because the 1949 Yatsia Kaiden is on Criterion as well. And they have been known in the past to do like releases where they'll release like two versions of the same story as like a double feature kind of release, mm. uh, like what they did with the lower depths from both Kurosawa and uh, Jean Renoir. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, hopefully, folks, you can uh, get a copy to watch along. I'm very excited for this. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Tokaido Yatsuwa Kaiden from 1959, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. We just finished watching Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa from 1959. Sarah, what did you think? This movie is very, very good. Yeah. The question is, like, is this the best version of Yatsuya Kaiden? Yes. And, like, obviously we haven't seen... Every. Future versions but this still has the reputation of it which does make me a little worried about sitting through other versions now but like it's not even close this movie is so good it's it's not even close it's so good this is so good yeah it's good as a yatsuwa kaiden adaptation it's good as a horror movie it's good as a movie yeah as a color film yeah um the score the theatricality the colors the lighting the staging the location photography the sets the surrealism i mean god damn it really has all been leading to this hasn't it god damn it nakagawa (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk about the story of this version of yatsuya kaiden the best version of Yatsuya Kaiden. <laughs> yes, I think definitively, at least as far as 1959. As I just mentioned, it's a fantastic adaptation of the play. Yes. So we hit all of the uh, iconic moments. Um, so while I might not specifically call them out in the synopsis, they are all here. Mm-hmm. So Yemen, asshole Yemen. He comes in the middle of the night to Oriwa and Asode's dad, Samon, uh, who's just like taking a late night walk with an attendant samurai who happens to be Yomoshichi's dad, as well as uh, a servant of theirs who's like lighting the, the pathway for them. And Yemen is coming out to be like, no, but really, can I marry Oriwa, please? Now, it's clear based on the language and his haircut that he no longer works for Oriwa's dad. And he's like, no, but really, like you said that I could. So like, why, why aren't you letting me marry her? Um, and they basically, Salmon and uh, Yo- Yomoshichi's dad are like, because you have a bad reputation and you come out in the middle of the night to confront us like this, like it's this is not s- honorable. It's because you're a slut, Yemen. <laughs> now, Yemen doesn't appreciate this language. And so in anger, he cuts them down. And then the uh, servant who's been lighting the way, his name is Nausuke. Hmm. 
And he is like, no, don't worry. I got a cover story. And, uh, you know, I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. We got this. Basically, the cover-up is that this well-known bandit guy who is like... The one-armed man. (laughs) He has a big slash across his face, and he's like well-known. You know, like the Dread Pirate Roberts came up, and he attacked these guys and ran off. And Gaiman tried to help, but no luck. So Yomoshichi and Gaiman, who is now back in good graces with Oiwa and Asode, swear vengeance to track down this bandit guy. Now, Asode... And Orwa, their sisters. Asode was going to be getting married to Yomoshichi, uh, but they decided to postpone that wedding for vengeance. You know, very good reason. I'm sure everyone involved, all the vendors will understand. Mm-hmm. And it's like implied that Gaiman and Orwa get married off screen at this point, um, based on like the way that they are interacting with each other. But they are out traveling from their town to go track down this bandit. Now, Nausuke and Yemen are like, cool, so we're going to, you know, just play this out. But Nausuke, if you are familiar with the play, really wants to get with the Sode. And so Nausuke and Yemen come up with a way to kill Yomoshichi over this waterfall by Nausuke stabbing him and then pushing him off the waterfall. Yeah, they push him off a waterfall. Yeah, it's dope as hell. It's um, dope as hell. So they kill y- Yomoshichi. Nausuke and Yemen come up with the story that, oh, the bandits ambushed us, and we, we really got to go to, like, track them down, but Oiwa is continually frail, and so she's like, no, I can't go on. Um, so they split the party. Nausuke and Asode chase after the bandits, and Yemen and Oiwa stay behind. Now, we cut to um, some time ahead. We'll say two years. We see Yemen and Oiwa are living in Edo. They have a little boy who I would say is maybe one-ish. Yeah, he's he might he's even be walking. under one. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's not walking. And Yemen is being awful as usual. This is usually where we see Yemen being a terrible, neglectful husband. Uh, they are living in poverty and he's making umbrellas. Now, Oiwa does bring up like, hey, when are we going to find a soda? And hey, when are we going to enact this revenge and Yemen's like shut up I'll do it this afternoon exactly that is totally his tone we see that Nausuke and Asode are both also in Edo and Asode's like well when are we going to find Oiwa and when are we going to exact revenge and Nausuke's like I'll do it this afternoon <laughs> cut to a brothel where Yemen and Nausuke happen to like know like know that each other are in Edo they're like Hanging out. Yeah, they, 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 they this clearly. This is all part of their plan. Yeah. Also at this brothel, we meet the masseuse, Takuetsu, who doesn't have any scruples, clearly. So we get the standard uh, situation of Yemen rescuing Ume and her dad from like some like... Jerks. Jerks. Um, Ume falling in love, etc. But kind of more central to this adaptation, we see that Asode and Nausuke have a bit more to do here. Um, and basically, Asode has told Nausuke that she's not going to marry him and therefore have sex until they avenge her father. Nausuke keeps trying to push that boundary, but, you know, she is holding firm with that. It's also shown that Nausuke and his mom, Omaki, are conspiring to get Yemen and Ume together because Omaki works at the Ito household. And basically, she's trying to be like, yeah, Nausuke, my son is the matchmaker, so, you know, you'll want him in your good graces, Ito-san. Nausuke, 
as the evil devil on Yemen's shoulder is like, yeah, so how you can get rid of Oriwa is with this poison tea. It will explicitly fuck up her face and then she'll die. Yeah, like as if it's going to basically cause like... Necrosis. Like, yeah, and like boils and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, you can always have Takuetsu come in because uh, he's in love with Oriwa. So, you know, just set them up and then, you know, catch them in the act and then you can divorce Oriwa. So... Yemen sets this all up. The poison tea takes effect just as Takuetsu is going in for the kiss. Now, he does get uh, rebuked by Oiwa, and he's like, you know, no, no, sorry, I, sorry, I've, I've lost my nerve here. Uh, Yemen set this all up, like, I'm, I'm really sorry. And Oiwa was like, Yemen, but he wouldn't do this. Oh, the poison tea I drank is now taking effect. And we get some moments of seeing her brush her hair and it like the follicles pull off from her head it's really well done makeup with like blood trickling down her face and stuff as she's like pulling out her scalp and things yeah now this event is happening the same night that nausuke tracks down the bandit with the scar who turns out is a real dude and i think is like under the impression that he's just meeting nausuke here yeah, like, the impression I got is, like, Nowski's a scoundrel, this guy's a bandit. So, like, they just, like, kind of, like, knew each other. The reason they used this guy as the scapegoat was that um, apparently he, like, robbed Oiwa and Asode's dad, like, way back in the past. And so it was like, oh, the guy who already had a thing against you. But, like, the implication here is that, like, Nowski knew this guy the whole time. And, yeah, that he's just, like, hey, Nowski, what's up? What did you want to meet about again? And then Nausuke stabs him, and Asode's like, oh, wow, like, yeah, you have avenged my father. Great, now I have to marry you. Mm -hmm. The other event happening tonight is the wedding to Ume, because why waste time? Right. Why do anything? Now, you may remember me saying that Yemen and Oiwa have a son. Well, that son gets killed by Oiwa um, with the razor blade. Uh, we don't see any like blood or anything, but she's like, I'm not going to leave you in Yemen's hands. If he's this awful, um, I would never rest in peace if that was the case. So that's what happens to the kid. And, and what happens to Oiwa, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Oiwa dies from these razor cuts, uh, as she's trying to like attack Takuetsu. Yeah. It's basically a murder suicide. Yeah. Now, Yemen comes back just in time as uh, Takuetsu is, like, trying to leave. And as was the setup all along, uh, Yemen's like, well, you know what samurais do to adulterers, right? And he kills Takuetsu. I love Takuetsu's thing of, like, no, man, like, I didn't touch her. Have you seen what she looks like? And he's like, what are you talking about? And, like, sees what the poison's done to her. And everyone agrees, like, ah! Yeah. So they nail... They, as in Gaiman and Nosuke, nail Oriwa and Takuetsu to the door, like the shutter, and then put them into a pond. Then Gaiman goes and gets married. Now, because all of this is implied to be the exact same night, the hunting starts immediately. It begins with, um, for Nosuke, uh, snakes appearing everywhere, which it's set up earlier in the film that snakes are kind of Oiwa's symbol because she was born in the year of the snake and stuff. Yeah, and she also says that um, snakes are messengers of the gods. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, 
this comes out because while Oiwa and Yemen were traveling at the start of the movie, uh, Yemen spotted a snake and killed it. Um, so we have some like, I don't know, Rime of the Ancient Mariner kind of vibes <laughs> going on here. Very true. So he keeps seeing snakes everywhere. Yemen keeps seeing her ghost everywhere, popping up here and there, hearing her voice. And as is tradition, he kills Ume, kills uh, the maid Omaki, uh, also Nasuke's mom, and um, the father. And he kills the father because in addition to seeing Oiwa's ghost everywhere, he's also seeing Takuetsu's ghost. So he's killed the entire family. He goes out to hide at a Buddhist temple on Snake Mountain. <laughs> what I really love about him hiding in the Buddhist temple, there's like a scene where the priests are all around him with like this circle of beads. I was like, you know, if I was getting haunted by a ghost, yeah, like go to a temple, ask some priests for help. Like that makes sense. <laughs> but I do love that like Oiwa dying, the marriage to Ume, like... And then killing all of Ube's family, like that all happens the same night. Yeah. I don't know, Yemen, maybe you're cursed. <laughs> so Nausuke, you know, at this time, he's out uh, combing the, the bottom of like a nearby stream um, to get like goods and stuff. And he comes across a comb, which we know is Oiwa's and was also Oiwa's mother's. Um, and he also finds a, a kimono that he's like, oh, you know, this this is still in good shape. So he takes that home. Only one stab wound in it. <laughs> he takes that home and Asode is like, where did you get these? Like, these were Oiwa's. Um, and he's like, uh, uh, nowhere. And then she hears a knock at the door. Oiwa's apparition comes to visit. Now, what's interesting is the apparition that Asode is seeing is Oiwa before the poison. And then any time that we cut back to Nausuke, uh, Oiwa post-death is, like, all around him. Mm -hmm. It's very uh, funny in the, like, sense of, like, relishing the vengeance. Sure, yeah. And because Nausuke is, like, getting totally freaked out, he spills the entire thing that Yemen was responsible for their dad's death, um, for killing Yomoshichi, uh, and also for killing Oiwa. And he runs out after all of this. Oiwa and Asode turn to each other. And then suddenly we cut to, like, Oiwa leading Asode through, like, this misty area. And then Asode arrives to someone's hut. And inside we see Yomoshichi, who is not dead. <laughs> and he is like, oh, Asode, I, I just had a dream about Oiwa and I've been trying to find you. And she's like, you're alive? He's like, yeah, no, like a woodsman found me and patched me up. And since then, I've been here in Edo trying to find you. Yeah, he, he, you know, was at one hit point and then he took a long rest and now he's completely fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they both compare notes that like, oh, yeah, Oiwa said to me that Yemen is up in this temple on Snake Mountain. He's responsible for all of this. So let's go fuck him up. Now, Nausuke is up at that temple um, to be like, Gaiman, I know you stole all of Ume's family's gold and all that. So give it to me. You know, we're partners. And he's being like quite insistent and rude about it. And Gaiman's like, I didn't steal anything. Leave me alone. And he ends up actually killing Nausuke in this confrontation because of the haunting intensifying. Haunting intensifies. Exactly. So Yomoshichi and Asode manage to get up to the temple and they are both here to enact revenge. Uh, so Sodi's in like this like 
uh, fighting outfit. Yeah, with like a sword and everything. Yeah, it's dope. I've never seen that before in a samurai movie. They do enact that revenge. They end up killing Yemen after like a very intense battle with the haunting getting worse and worse and worse for him. Um, and he dies. Then we see Oriwa and her son's spirit in like a misty shot. Uh, and they are like rising to the heavens um, and can finally like rest in peace. Uh, and that's the end. Yeah. So like Nakagawa is simultaneously being more accurate to the kabuki play, both in particulars and in like broad strokes of style. So we have like so many details from the play that have kind of fallen by the wayside over the years. Like Yemen goes fishing and the door arises to him in a haunting. Right. Or like opening with Yemen killing Oiwa's dad, which like I think is something that, at least in this version, while Nowsuke is still the like devil on his shoulder, does set up right away that like Yemen is a bad person to start with. Yes. Like Nowsuke pushes and Nowsuke comes up with like plans. Yeah. But Yemen is a bad person. This isn't the like wishy-washy Yemen of the 1949 movie. This isn't the like son who has to get pushed by his mom of the 56 this isn't the like prickly but generally an okay guy of (laughs) kenji masumi's version like yemen's a bad person and then not only do we have all these particulars coming back like yomosichi being thought dead and then coming back yomosichi being the one who fights yemen at the temple at the end now with Asode in play as well, which is super cool, giving Asode like the agency of not so much the like detective role she has in some of these adaptations, but like the revenge enacting daughter. Yeah, exactly. So we get all these particulars back. Um, Takuetsu's back at the brothel. He's still like a like a masseuse. Like it's almost like they're Nakagawa's taking like the original Kabuki play, but he's also keeping things that have kind of been added on over the years as well because like keep in mind the play has also been changed as it's been performed on stage Mm -hmm. um he's done a really he is in nakagawa has done a really fantastic job of even tying to the very famous and um reputable 1949 version which Mm -hmm. we we didn't uh rank yeah so many plot details from the play make it in but also like that kabuki style to the point where the movie starts with the chanter and like the traditional kabuki music introducing the story um it starts with a kabuki uh curtain being drawn back like this is coming back to the roots and yet despite including all of these things the action doesn't feel bogged down with too many characters it doesn't Mm -hmm. drag like Nakagawa ain't fucking around. Like characters <laughs> will announce their intent to do a thing. And then in the next scene, that thing is either done or being done. Yeah. Like we aren't in a movie here where Yemen's going to like fuck around dating Ume for like a month and then marry her and then like be her husband for like a couple weeks. And then the haunting starts. It's like, no dog, everything is happening. The plot moves along at a very good clip. And yet, you never feel lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tight 80 minutes. 
Um, they've done a really good job of streamlining the story. There is some shorthand done throughout, um, kind of relying on the audience's knowledge of the play, like for why Nausuke would want to get rid of Yomoshichi before it's explicitly established that he likes Asode. But by and large, I think that it's um, done a really good job of making everything like logical to an unfamiliar audience mm-hmm. and basically taking out anything that does not serve the horror part of the story. Yeah. And what's really impressive is despite including all these things, all of the reasoning for all of everything makes sense. Like all of the, why are we doing this yeah. is still here. Yeah. I think you're totally right that this works if you haven't seen the play. Like we've talked before with previous movie versions of like, they feel like they assume you've seen the play. Yeah. This feels like maybe it's assuming that, but also that like you could have never seen the play and still follow what's going on, which is super impressive. Yeah. I think that's also what makes it a really good adaptation. Kind of going back to what something you mentioned about the Kabuki-ness, mm. I guess, um, because yeah, it absolutely starts with the Kabuki announcer. Um, but I noticed a lot of the blocking throughout the movie felt very kabuki. The first scene that we get after the stage introduction, basically, is as if it is happening along one of those platforms that are leading over the audience, Mm -hmm. um, the way that everyone is walking along uh, what is basically a pond or something. And it, it was quite frequently throughout the movie where they would bring in certain kind of blocking or action that would make sense for the way that people would like pop in and out out during kabuki and yet like we aren't on kabuki sets like everything feels real in terms of the settings we have location shooting which is really impressive we have really well designed sets but then although the sets are realistic and we're not doing like painted backgrounds or something the lighting is very theatrical. We have colored lighting in mm-hmm. a lot of places. We have like scenes where all the lights go down and there's just like a spotlight on Yemen. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you described certain haunting scenes or sequences as surreal mm-hmm. because there are moments where like suddenly the camera's very far away, all we see is black, and then Yemen is like spotlit from like above. Um, but he's very far away in the actual picture. It's like a long shot. And then we'll cut to like a close up of something. There are moments where like Oiwa or Takuetsu on the shutter um, pop up uh, as if like that actor was being popped up through the kabuki hidden doors, but it's almost like acting like a jump scare mm-hmm. in a film. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and just, yes, to kind of elaborate on the use of color. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie itself, when it starts, feels like it has atmosphere, but it's more like naturalistic in the sense of you don't have the colors and stuff. It's yeah. really when the haunting is intensifying that you get these colors, particularly red for blood and green for supernatural and also the like undead skin. Yeah, um, by the end of the movie, like, Oiwa and Takuetsu are being lit by, like, just green light. And there's shots where, like, as the haunting intensifies, like, Yemen will find himself in, like, surreal landscapes, like a room that's entirely made out of the doors that they nailed them to, or, like, a burning surface, or, like, just darkness, um... It's, it's so cool. It's so cool. 
I think one of my favorite moments, I mean, the whole movie is very good, but a favorite moment is when Gaiman does kill Nausuke because we know we are in the temple and he slashes at Nausuke from like, I'll say like a medium long shot. Um, and then it like cuts, but we're still seeing Nausuke and Gaiman where they were. And it's like on the side of the pond where you see Oriwa on the door floating and then Nausuke falls into the pond and then we cut back to the temple and he he's just fallen onto the floor. But it's like the same angle. Exactly. So it's like a jump cut. It, it's so well done. It's so cool. And what's really clever talking about that use of color and the way that it gets more extreme as the haunting intensifies in the middle portion of the film where we're past the kind of like we're outdoors and we're all a family, but we're not quite at ghost time yet. Yemen and Oiwa's house has these green tints to like the mosquito netting. Yemen's kimono has like a greenish tint to it. And so that color scheme of green gets introduced and start putting into the movie in a naturalistic way before it starts getting more surrealistic. Yeah, I noticed that with the uh, mosquito net in particular. And like when he is with Ume getting into bed, their mosquito net is pink tinged. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, it's so well done. A lot of attention to detail. Yeah, and using those iconic images that we've seen again and again and again, like the mosquito net, like that's always been there, but in like new ways and figuring out how to do new things with it. Uh, he makes excellent use of the doors and the river imagery in the haunting sequences. He ramps them up until they feel like, like by the end, some of the stuff he was doing just on a filmmaking note, the kind of jump cuts and things and surrealist things. It feels like filmmaking like 10 years ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. Like if you told me this was a movie from the late sixties, I would believe you. I think it would be really neat to do a double feature of this and vertigo. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. The only traditional bit that he doesn't do is the flying lantern Oiwa. Um, yeah. Which usually appears to a Sode after the murder, which is kind of usually a Sode's first clue that like something's wrong. Instead, this time Oiwa just comes to her sister and is like, let me get you to Yomosichi. And I love how wonderfully dreamlike that sequence is. You know I like dreamlike shit. In oh, my yeah. horror movies. Uh, that's such a cool scene of her leading them through the mist. Oiwa's disfigurement is excellently handled. Yeah, it doesn't feel... It feels somehow so realistic. She gets and uh, realistic and yet wrong. Like, really wrong. <laughs> like, she gets... It, it, it fits with this movie's overall vibe of, like, not fucking around. Because, like, she gets worse in every shot until she is dead. And like the combing scene is so wonderfully gruesome. And then as a ghost, she appears as like her ever decomposing corpse to Yemen. Like I think the corpse is getting worse as the movie goes. I I would agree. Yeah. And then, you know, but she can appear in other forms to her sister or we see her like when she ascends at the end, she looks, you know, perfect, right? Angelic. Adding Takuetsu as a ghost is super cool And the thing I noted about that is it connects this film to Nakagawa's Kaiden Kasani Gafuchi 
because the masseuse in that movie was one of the ghosts along with the typical woman ghost as well. Mm. So it's, it's a kind of a through line. What I thought was really interesting. I don't know if he meant to incorporate moments of humor Mm. um, or just kind of like dark humor, but there definitely are moments like that. Like anytime that Oriwa shows up, she's like, Yaman, how could you do this to me? How could you be like this specific example of being an asshole and that specific example? And when Takuetsu speaks, he's like, Yaman, where's my money? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just... There were, there were a couple times you laughed and I don't know if they're intended to be funny or if it's just your dark sense of humor, sure. my love. <laughs> uh, because yes, uh, as... Yemen was getting like almost surrounded on all sides. Like the kind of thing where he will run for a door and Oi was there and then turn around and run for a door and Oi was also there. Like you would laugh at stuff like that as the like walls are closing in. And I think that's just you, like you said earlier, relishing. Yeah. Um, you absolutely are rooting for Yemen's comeuppance in this movie. Um, Nakagawa also feels like he's engaging with the religious elements of you know, ghosts more fully than any previous version. Do you mean because of the use of the snake as like messenger of the gods? Well, like that, um, the stuff at the temple, like showing priests, the imagery, like, okay, so Misumi's version had Yemen go to a temple as well. And there was subtle religious elements there because that's almost like a a redemption story for Yemen. And, you know, the movie ends with like the light coming down from the temple on his dead body and things, but it was very subtle. Nakagawa isn't fucking around. uh, So he goes all out and you have these images that give you a sensation that Yemen has been abandoned by the divine and consigned to eternal damnation. Like when he's at the temple and starts getting haunted at the temple, he collapses in front of a statue of the Buddha and He's like, you know, reaching out to it and it's like pulling away from him. It pulls away into the darkness and suddenly he's in a big black void. And then we get jump cuts to like fire everywhere. And then at the end, we have Oiwa and her child like ascending to the heavens, right? So this is not the maybe the ghost is all in his head and is a psychological, you know, expression (laughs) of his guilt that we've had, you know, in more like tentative movies earlier this is fully like no this is a ghost and if ghosts are real that means like that the afterlife is real and if the afterlife is real that means like damnation is real but also like paradise is real and like yemen's going to one and oi was going to the other it it's just the way this movie goes for all of these elements the religious stuff the kabuki stuff um it really feels to me like Nakagawa is saying like, hey, guys, the occupation is over. We don't have to like hide our culture anymore. Mm. We can revel in it. Because one of the reasons why Kinosuke Kinoshita's version from 1949 was, you know, more psychological and more like grounded in realism was because like during the occupation, like you couldn't do kabuki and you couldn't like have these traditional forms of culture. And we've been seeing it kind of slowly coming back over the course of the 1950s. And Nakagawa's here being like, guys, it's 1959. Like the Americans left like five years ago. Like let's fucking just do it guys. Rip the bandaid <laughs> off. This Yatsuya Kaiden is like unabashedly a ghost story, a horror story, a kabuki adaptation. 
Um, it makes every version before feel really timid. Absolutely. And I think I'm not wrong about my feeling that this is kind of a like, hey guys, let's fucking be Japanese message because we get a detail in this version that I don't think has been in any previous version, which is that Nowske gets the poison imported from Europe. Sure. Like it's a Western poison. I think the only other time that the origin of the poison has been mentioned is that it's from China, I think, in the previous, in the earlier 1959 one, and really a way for it to be like, almost like a foreign type of thing. Yeah, but here it's like explicitly yes. something brought in from the West, and that, you know, is what ruins Oiwa. And so this movie feels, you know, maybe in kind of like a gross reactionary way, but like feels like a reclaiming of Japanese identity to me where it's like this is our culture let's fucking do it guys <laughs> yeah I didn't think of that but um I think that you are definitely right that Nakagawa is celebrating in Japanese culture and Japanese kabuki and and everything like that yeah it's like it's a ghost story guys like Nakagawa's over here making a horror movie. I don't know what the fuck everybody else has been doing this whole time, but like, geez. Uh, well, let's move on to ranking. So I really liked this movie, Sarah, and maybe I need to be pulled down a bit due to like recency bias because um, we just finished watching this and I'm like, that was so good. Um, so I've got a little bit of a big range and okay. the top of my range is within the top 10. Okay. So the bottom of my range is down at 23, below Dracula and above Night of the Demon. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I put it there is because that's sort of the spot on the list where movies stop fucking around. Sure. Like, you look below that, we have Night of the Demon, which is all about like, well is the occult real or is this guy just a con man? And like at the end of the movie, like there's a big giant fucking demon, but still that's like the theme of that movie. House on Haunted Hill is like, is the house really haunted or is it just, you know, Vincent Price with a elaborate animatronic? Macabre is also like, is the girl dead? Is she, is there haunting or whatever? Like all of these movies below this are kind of like, is something happening or not? And then we get to Dracula and it's like, no, vampires are real, actually, um, which was a big thing for that movie in 1931, right? In American horror. So I made that my floor. It's like, that's the dividing line. And then looking up from there, I just kept thinking about how fun this movie is and how cool it was. And I made my ceiling the fly at number four. I think this could go above Spiral Staircase, which is, like, a good movie, but, like, damn, like, this movie's so good, though. <laughs> um, you know, and it's been a while. Like, Spiral Staircase was 1946. So, again, like, maybe I have some recency bias here, but, like, I'm just feeling like this was so good. Yeah, uh, my range actually kind of fits within yours. Okay, cool. So, just to say it explicitly... The highest ranking Yatsuo Kaiden so far is uh, from Misumi earlier this year, uh, currently ranked at number 97. I was like, nope, this is going above. Mm -hmm. In fact, I started looking at Horror of Dracula. Yeah, and 
Also, just so it's said, our highest ranking Japanese movie at all so far, Kurute Ichipeji, is at 38. No, my love. Oh, Gojira. Gojira. Of course. Gojira's at number, number three. Three. Yeah, I think I was thinking like Japanese, go- like I was thinking very traditional, like ghost oh, movies. Okay. Uh, and I didn't even think about Gojira, but of course, like Gojira is quintessentially Japanese. How silly of me. No worries. Um, I also thought about Gojira and I was like, no, I think Gojira's on uh, a whole other scale. Yeah, I think so too. But Because I, I think- it's a giant monster. <laughs> <laughs> but comparing this to Horror of Dracula makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because they're both working with color. Um, and I ultimately decided, like, I think I'm not going to put this above Horror of Dracula because without Horror of Dracula and that use of color and everything coming to Japan, I don't know if... Nakagawa either the studio would allow him or he would himself would feel as comfortable using color in this manner yeah that's a very good point so I was like you know this is really close but I'm going to keep horror of Dracula above but that meant that um I ultimately decided my ceiling was going to be at number nine short Carlin uh phantom carriage because I was like you know what they kind of have a similar thesis of like this person's a jerk and you shouldn't be a jerk right yeah <laughs> very fair um obviously Yatsuya Kaiden is a lot more fun than Phantom Carriage um it doesn't have the same kind of like beat you down with this message yeah and I which think that's is, almost to its credit yeah it's it's Phantom Carriage is like a double-edged sword right because the beating you down thing is part of the horror right? Yeah. And like, you really feel the horror in that movie, but that's a movie. Like the thing is, is there's a difference of who you're supposed to be empathizing with. Short Carlin puts you in the shoes of David Holm and asks you to kind of feel what he's feeling as the world collapses around him. Whereas like, we're not really meant to be empathizing with Yemen here. Like, yeah. You know, so it's two very different tones and like one is shorter and more fun than the other. So I think there's a definite like what flavor are you in the mood for today kind of element there. So that was my ceiling. Looking down, I decided my floor was going to be La Diabolique at 18 because I was like that movie sure tries to go for it with the haunting. But ultimately, it's like it's not real, though. Like it, it's it scares you to death. But mm. like. Orba is trying to scare Yemen to death yes. and succeeds. So I am tempted to say that since my ceiling was a little bit higher than yours, let's put this above Phantom Carriage um, on the basis that it is got more of a heartbeat to it. Mm-hmm. And below, I walked with a zombie. Cool. I'm happy with that because I think... Um, I Walked With a Zombie does a really good job of bringing in, um, this is probably going to sound insensitive, but like the Haitian aesthetic, like the everything around voodoo from like the history to slavery to um, actually depicting it and the mystique around it and everything. I Walked With a Zombie also lets us kind of like sit with the horror a bit and let it... Percolate. Yeah, let it steep. Um, without being too long and draggy. Um, one thing that this Yatsuya Kaiden does not do is like stop for a breath at any point. No. 
but I kind of appreciate that as well. Yeah, no kidding. Cool, I'm happy with this. All right, awesome. So sneaking in to the top 10 uh, right before Halloween, uh, we have at the new number nine, Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa from 1959. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or talk to us over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. We have received an appeal on Lady Vampire uh, on a Kyuketsuki um, which is also a Nakagawa movie, right? So yes. that's that's kind of interesting. So we'll be addressing that appeal in a future episode. In a future episode. But super cool to get something like that. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through whatever podcasting app you prefer using our RSS feed. And you can really help the show out by leaving us a rating or review on podcasting apps. Give us a five-star rating on Spotify, throw a review on iTunes. Those sorts of things really help the show because it boosts the show for algorithms, the things that control all of our lives now. However, if you reject our machine overlords, you can talk about the show via word of mouth and just share it with your friends directly. That is often the most effective way for us to grow our audience. We are in October. It is Halloween season. People are like, what? obscure classic horror movies should I watch? And you should be like, hey, you know how all the Japanese ghosts are like weird, like wet women with long black hair? You ever wonder what that's about? You should watch Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden and you should listen to this show that tells you why. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, you can help us out by uh, sharing the show with your friends. You can also help us out by heading on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Your patronage helps pay for our hosting fees and also just really helps with us being able to take the time out to do all of the research and uh, many, many bonus things that we do to make the show what it is. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content. At $5, you're going to have weekly bonus audio. At $10, there's bonus writing on all kinds of topics. And of course, in October, we always do some extra special stuff. So Sarah's putting together yet another wonderful dramatic reading of a horror short story. And we're going to have a very special Patreon bonus episode of Sarah and I just blasting through some Japanese ghost cat movies that we had missed leading up to 1959. Um, So for those of you who have been asking, when are you going to do these old ghost cat movies that you forgot about? Check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, which is also where you can vote every month on our horror-adjacent bonus episodes. The horror-adjacent bonus episode for October is Disney's The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. So watch for that coming out as a special Halloween treat. And Sarah pulled off one of the great top 10 anime betrayals of all time and threw in some options for November's horror-adjacent bonus episode that I'm going to argue are less horror adjacent than they are steeped in fall feels 
I was very explicit about that in the introduction to that poll, and I don't apologize for anything. It looks like over the garden wall is win in a landslide, which makes sense. It's the most actually horror adjacent of those choices. But Sarah, I know you were pulling in your heart for all that heaven allows to win so that we could talk about some Douglas Sirk, Rock Hudson, uh, Jane Wyman melodrama. Yeah, you want to see some colored lighting? <laughs> no kidding. Um, well, anyways, I, I uh, like I said, I don't apologize for anything, but I will do what the patrons desire, including asking you, what are we watching next week? So next week, Sarah, I'm very excited. We're sort of staying in Japan. It's an American film shot and produced in Japan where our above-the-line talent are American, but below-the-line crew is Japanese. It's a movie about a man who, you know, through the horrors of nuclear science becomes a monster. He's a, he's a man who's a monster. It's, it's 1959's The Manster. Oh my god. What a name. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this extremely weird movie. Okay. So that will wait until next week. Uh, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.